You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. We turn this morning to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 to 38. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on or by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. 
He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. I preach this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the gospel according to Mark chapter 15 verse 39, which is the Next verse after our scripture reading. And it says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, as you know, today is called Good Friday. But have you ever asked yourself what's so really good about it? Is this not the terrible day long ago when slander triumphed, injustice prevailed, hate won out, innocence was condemned, and death had the last word? What's So good about this. And indeed, should we not actually call this Evil Friday or Black Friday? Would these not be more appropriate names seeing what happened on this day? So why do the calendars insist on calling it Good Friday? And why Does the Christian church insist on calling it Good Friday? Well, beloved, there really is only one answer. And it has to do with us. For it was on this fateful day long ago that the Father's plan to redeem for himself a people through the blood and the death of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Good Friday is good precisely because of what it does for us sinners. For on that day, Jesus redeemed us. On that cross, he paid for us. In that place, he set us free. At the cost, you can say of himself, he made it profoundly and marvelously good. For us. 
But of course, beloved, it has to be added that this was not something that was immediately apparent. If you had been there on that special day so many years and centuries ago, you would have wondered. And at the same time, if you had listened to the words that were uttered on or by the cross on that day, you would have wondered as well. For there you would have heard the Christ himself say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It's finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Seven times Jesus Christ spoke from the cross. And beloved, they were all cries of anguish. Cries of anguish echoing through the hills around Golgotha. But still, beloved, I would remind you this morning that the Lord Jesus was not the only one who spoke on that day. There were others. There were passerbys who insulted him and said, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. There were also the chief priests and the teachers of the law who mocked him, saying he saved others. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see with our own eyes and believe. And there were also some who remarked after one of his cries, Listen, he's calling Elijah. And as well, there was a man who said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah, if Elijah comes to take him down from the cross. And so what do we have, beloved, of the cross? We have the tortured cries of the Lord Jesus. And we have the accusing, ridiculing, mocking comments of the spectators. And taken together, they all add to the gloom of the day. For the vast majority of witnesses, this was either a sad day or it was a day of just deserts. And the comments that were heard varied from too bad to did it really have to end this way to he had it coming or it served him right or even good riddance. In other words, beloved, the comments made on that day leave the overriding impression that this was not a good day. And yet in the midst of all of that gloom, and in the midst of all of those tormented words and all of that mockery, there is one different sound. As a matter of fact, it's not even a sound. It's much more like a confession. Yes, a confession rings out and it comes from the strangest, the most unexpected and unlikely quarter. It comes and it causes us, surely, to reflect deeper 
And it comes to us and alerts us to the fact that perhaps there is more here. Much more than the senseless deaths of an insignificant man. It comes and it lays the basis for calling this day good after all. So, beloved, I preached to you this morning on the following scene. A stunning confession about the crucified Christ from a most surprising source. And we shall ask ourselves who made it, what did it mean, and how does it impact us today? So a stunning confession about the crucified Christ from a most surprising source. Who made it? What did it mean? And how does it impact us today? So, beloved, what is this confession that I referred to a moment ago? Well, you can find it in verse 39, our text of this morning. In other words, surely, surely this man was the son of God. Now, before you consider and reflect on the meaning of those words, we should first of all look at the source. Who said it? Who uttered these words? Who who made this confession? Well, verse 39 says that it was a centurion. It says that when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. But if the source was a centurion, what does that mean? It means a number of things. First, it means that here we have a soldier speaking. In other words, this is not a passerby. This is not a priest or a teacher. No, this is someone who works for Rome, who belongs to the ranks of the oppressors. He's the enemy. In the second place, this is a centurion speaking, which means that this is no ordinary soldier. This man commands men. He has at least a hundred men under him. He is their leader. Yes, and as a military leader, he has no doubt seen quite a lot, for no one becomes a centurion in the Roman army without having been in a lot of battles or experienced any number of military campaigns, or shown personal bravery. And in the third place, this centurion was almost certainly a Gentile and an outsider. He couldn't have been a Jewish centurion, for that would have been very much a contradiction in terms. No Jew in his right mind would ever join the Roman army. For Rome was the enemy. Rome was the despised, uncircumcised enemy. So this man is a Gentile. He's either a Roman or he comes from one of the tribes or the nations that Rome has conquered. And also know that although he is called a centurion, nowhere is he called a Roman centurion or a centurion of Roman extraction. Perhaps he was, perhaps he was not. The important thing is, 
He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He's a heathen. He's an unbeliever. But then, beloved, not only is this man a centurion, he is also a centurion who happens to have seen and done a lot. How much exactly, we cannot say. But nevertheless, it is reasonable to assume that he was there from the moment that Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. In short, he most likely witnessed the trial of the Lord Jesus. He heard how the chief priests repeatedly accused him, and he noted that Jesus did not answer them a word. And he saw that Pilate was perplexed and rattled by this so-called nondescript Jewish rebel. And he noted how Pilate tried to get the people to choose Jesus over Barabbas. But that his plan backfired. And no doubt he could still hear the frenzied cries of the crowd ringing in his ears, crucify him, crucify him. And then the centurion's time had come. Pilate handed Jesus over to the centurion to be prepared for crucifixion. And he and his soldiers had taken him. They had stripped him. They had put a purple robe upon him. They wove a crown of thorns and thrust it down on his brow. And then they had proceeded to mock him. They called him the king of the Jews and they hailed him. They struck him and they spat at him. They thoroughly humiliated him. And thereafter they let him out to be crucified. And then the centurion experienced more. He probably was the one who ordered the soldiers to load Jesus down with the cross. And perhaps he was also the one who told Simon of Cyrene to carry it for a while. And finally when this procession came to the place of the skull, He ordered his soldiers to nail Jesus to the cross. And they did so. And then they planted the cross in the ground. And there hung Jesus. But you know, the ordeal and the witnessing for this man was not over. For surely the centurion heard how the Jewish leaders mocked him. He heard as well how the passers-by derided and ridiculed him. But more than anything else, he heard what Jesus had to say on the cross. And he especially heard his last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he saw how he died. And sure, beloved, here's a man, here's a soldier, here's a leader of men, a Gentile, an impartial observer. 
He sees all. He participates in so much of it. And what does he say at the end? His testimony is this. Surely, this man was the son of God. What a remarkable testimony. What a a stunning witness. What a stirring and startling confession. But what did it mean? What did the centurion really mean with these words of his? Was this a deep, well-thought-out theological statement and assessment on his part? Most likely not, beloved. Now this man simply took note of Jesus. He saw how he carried himself, he he listened to his words, he, he saw how he died, and then it all, as it were, forced him to speak. It left a deep and disturbing impression on him. Yes, here's a man. But he's so much more than a man. Here's a man who's also God. Here's the God-man. And indeed, beloved, if you think of it, all of this makes Jesus rather an oddity, doesn't he? It makes him a marvel, it makes him a mystery, but it also, I would remind you, makes him the perfect Savior, Mediator, and Lord. For as man and God, Jesus Christ is first one of us. This means that he knows our life. He's not like some Greek god always looking down on the earth from afar. No, he knows our life because he became part of our life, part of our existence, part of our world. He knows its joys and its sorrows, its ups and downs, its triumphs and its trials. But not only does being man acquainted with our life, it also means he can stand in our stead. For to us to be saved, we need someone who is like us. Man has sinned and man must pay. That's the principle of justice everywhere. But then not just any man can do that. It has to be a righteous man, a sinless man, a man as man should be, as man ought to be, as man is supposed to be. And Jesus is all of that. He exhibits true humanness. He's the real man. But he's also more. As man, he is one of us. 
But He is also God, and as God, He is more than us. As God, He possesses all the qualities and the attributes of the Godhead, majesty, omnipotence, holiness, justice, goodness, mercy, wisdom, eternity, and so much more. In other words, here is someone who knows our situation, but also someone who can do something about our situation. And that's what he's doing on the cross. He's doing something, beloved, about our broken, sinful situation. He's doing something about our estrangement. He's doing something about our deaths. As God and man, he's paying the sacrifice himself. He's dying for us in our stead, in our place, for our salvation and redemption. He's doing what someone did in World War I. A grenade was tossed into a trench full of soldiers. It was a live grenade. And what did one of the soldiers do? He threw himself on top of that grenade. He took its full impact. It blew him up. And he died. He died for others. And you know, that's also what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. He died for others. He died for others and so much more. And so, beloved, do you begin to see what is all involved in this confession of the centurion? You can be assured that he did not fully and truly understand the full and the complete import of his words. But you can be sure as well that God the Father knew what he was doing when he led this Gentile to make this confession. He was using a foreigner to bear witness to his son. He was using an outsider to confirm what one day many outsiders would confirm, namely, truly, this is the son of God. And that, beloved, makes all of the difference It should make us stand up and take notice. I surmise we live in a day and age where confessions are not very popular anymore. In fact, many people, even some Christians, would say that what this centurion said was far too dogmatic, too abstract, too theological. We're not so much interested in who Jesus actually is. We want to know what Jesus does, what Jesus represents. 
For example, did you happen to read Douglas Todd in the Vancouver Sun last Saturday? The article that he wrote was entitled, Jesus Uncovered Again in Yet Another Book. And in it, Todd reviews especially the book of a certain Rex Whaler, a founder of Greenpeace and a former director of a resort or a retreat on Cordes Island. And this book is called The Jesus Sayings, The Quest for His Authentic Message. And in this book, Whaler makes the claim that he has now uncovered, finally, he's uncovered the real Jesus. And what kind of a Jesus is this? Todd writes, he's a wandering Jewish wise man, influenced by Greek philosophy, who didn't think of himself as the only son of God, but instead identified himself with other humans as the son of Adam. Now, beloved, Whaler is not alone. Todd remarks that this book is only one of a great many more making the rounds today. There is also Deepak Chopra, who has written the third Jesus, in which he claims that Jesus was a maverick, a mystic, an anti-establishment champion of God consciousness. And there is Barry Wilson who has written how Jesus became Christian, in which he alleges the Christian church adapted Jesus' identity to justify creating an organization in his name. And there is also Rita Brock and Rebecca Parker who have written a book called Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded Love of This World for Crucifixion and Empire. And in it they claim that the real teaching of a dead and crucified Jesus didn't appear until 1000 AD and that it's all a big Fiction. But then Todd asks, and we may ask with him, do any of these books reveal anything new? I would say, beloved, they recycle the kind of nonsense that liberal Bible scholars have been spouting for ages. And so many of these people who write these books gain popularity because they get an endorsement from the ultimate authority today, Oprah. And so many ignore what the Bible says and simply take refuge in the most absurd flights of fantasy and invention. Yes, and so much of what these people write finds its way, sadly, onto the pulpits of mainline churches. And beloved, lest we forget, so much of this also has the potential to drive us off course. And even to undermine our faith, our Catholic undoubted Christian faith. 
And beloved, when it comes to making a choice between what so many are saying and writing about Jesus today and about the confession of that unbelieving centurion, there is little doubt where our loyalty should lie. You and I need to listen to the centurion and to the scriptures. And we need to teach and remind our children to stick close to them as well. And more than anything else, we need to stick close to what they say about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, we may not think it, but actually this is a salvation issue. The whole thrust of John's gospel, for example, is that, that we in the end might believe that, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and that we may have life in His name. And you know, in his letters, John writes that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that every other spirit, he says, is the spirit of Antichrist. And he even tells us not to welcome into our homes those who deny the true person of Jesus Christ. Little wonder, therefore, that the Athanasian Creed is on record as saying that it's necessary to eternal salvation that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equally both God and man. So, beloved, I say to you, if you want this day to be a truly good Friday, you need to embrace the confession of that Gentile centurion. Anything less will indeed make it ugly Friday or dark Friday. Only the conviction and the confession that it was Jesus Christ as God and man who died on that day long ago can really make it good for us and good for all of creation. For then truly it means that my sins have been paid for that my righteousness has been obtained and that the way to eternal life and glory is for me an open door and a sure hope. And it means the king of creation has come and one day he will make all things new. In this Christ alone and through this Christ alone, we can have a truly 
good and blessed Friday. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.